Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Monster on the Beach. I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say the line was out the door. It was out the door. Um, there was only a couple pharmacies um, in Brevard that would fill them. But if you went to like a Walgreens, CVS, they would just laugh. The, the pharmacists gave us statements and said, I won't fill a gating prescription. I'm John Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast. In the years after his son's overdose on OxyContin, Dr. John Gaydon not only opens up a cash-only pill mill, but is also said to have prescribed more OxyContin over six months than the entire state of California. His thriving business is creating addicts, changing an entire neighborhood, and making him filthy rich. But it's not only that. The man who was married for 26 years before his divorce in 2006 is also alleged to have acquired a sexual appetite for young teenagers. Yeah, that's right. Apparently, Gaydon starts using the allure of pills to start sleeping with girls as young as 15 years old. 15 years old. And it seems he never bothered to really keep his dalliances secret. Here is beachside resident Gemma Soto who worked as a waitress at one of the better beachside restaurants during that time. It was an upscale restaurant in town. You can probably figure out what it is. Uh, But he would come in with this young girl, and we all thought it was kind of bizarre. And, uh, and, you know, they would come in quite often, maybe like once a month or every couple of months, or, I mean, a couple times a month. Um, And, I mean, you could clearly just tell she was underage. I mean, she looked like uh, literally a teenage girl going to a homecoming like the dresses you know she wore and everything and um and so of course he would always try to like get her to drink and we would always have to tell him like no like our liquor license is at stake you know we don't care that you're you know a wealthy doctor you can't we can't serve her alcohol she's underage um and she was just oh i mean just a mess like just was you know falling asleep over her soup Another person told me that Gaydon would go into a shop at the mall to buy these girls clothes, and they would barely be able to stand up. It wasn't long before the ages of Gaydon's companions was common knowledge in the area. Again, here is neighborhood resident Carrie Martin. And then stories started surfacing of not only was he, it was Dr. Gaydon, giving drug prescriptions to anybody who could give him $200 cash, but he was preying on teenage girls who were drug addicts and using them, keeping them for himself to use however he pleased in trades for drugs. And these were young, beautiful girls that we would see walking up and down A1A looking ragged, like they were having a really terrible time. And Tyler Kelsey, who was good friends with another of Gaydon's underage girlfriends. There is a girl a year older than me who is uh, Gaydon's, uh, one of his victims, we'll call it. Because what he would do is, for girls, 
underage girls. I think this girl's was uh, 16, 15, 16, 17 when, it, when she started with him. He would trade the pills and instead for cash, trade it for sex. So now you have a pedophi- pedophilic pill mill doctor. And he developed a relationship with one of the girls who lived on my street. Uh, she was a very pretty girl. And um, eventually, you know, he kind of, she kind of became his mistress. And um, she would kind of get her friends, you know, help, help get them in there. And, you know, almost is a, a, a smaller version of what you see kind of with Jeffrey Epstein. And this girl would kind of, you know, bring people around and, you know, I don't want to make accusations that she was bringing friends over to have sex with them. I just know that she was and... You know, she's been open about that. And but all these other girls ended up with pills, right? I ended up with pills. So, you know, you put two and two together. Um, and then, so you have this pedophilic doctor now preying upon girls, trading his pill mill drugs for sex, uh, underage women. Deborah Lavelle, who we heard from last episode and whose son became an addict, said she was at her wit's end trying to figure out what to do. When she started seeing a lot of her son's friends online outside Gaydon's office, she eventually turned to letter writing to Florida Today newspaper and to law enforcement agencies. She told me no one ever responded to her. I recognize a lot of my friends' kids that were also, you know, in their early 20s. They were all went to school with one of my kids. And I'd be like, what is he doing? You know, he's hooking these kids. He had an underage girlfriend. That he showed himself around town, you know, and I was, why is nobody doing anything? So I would just write in letters. So by this point, you're probably asking yourself, where were the police all this time? After all, Gaydon has been operating his pill mill since 2006, spreading his misery totally unchecked for several years. People are talking about it. His attraction for young girls is no secret. On the surface, this may seem like a law enforcement failure. But was it? Well, the long and short answer is that it's complicated. And in many cases, law enforcement's hands were tied. They knew what was going on. Multiple agencies began working together, doing surveillance and cultivating sources. But remember what I said in episode one about the area being unincorporated, meaning it belongs to the county and not any of the towns or cities on its borders? That made things a little tricky. John Gaydon's office fell under the jurisdiction of the sheriff's office. But as Chief Connor of neighboring Indiantic explains, the sheriff's office has an awfully long stretch of county to patrol in that area. And it's hard, too, because, you know, we're a small agency, but the sheriff's office has their hands full, too, and the sheriff's office is stretched thin. You know, beachside, you have, you have three zone deputies that go all the way from the south end of Cocoa Beach to the Sebastian Inlet. So they can't be everywhere at once either. And they have, you know, specialized units that come in and obviously and they'll, they'll take care of, you know, SIU and things like that. They'll come in and, but it, again, you have to kind of wait until you get the complaints start building up or, you know, an officer, a patrol officer gets lucky and sees something and then goes, ah, oh, that doesn't look right. And they kind of pass it up a chain, but it's, it's rough. He, he drew a lot of attention to himself for a very long time. Cops love acronyms. SIU stands for Special Investigative Unit. Connor still shakes his head at the entire case, saying to this day he's never seen anything like it. 
He knew the case was being worked by Melbourne Police, FDLE, or the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the Sheriff's Office, and the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. His role? Send whatever information he could to those agencies. I am very thankful it stayed out of my jurisdiction, so to speak, although it was just across the line. So um, I knew that the Sheriff's Office and I knew the DEA was involved, and um, we talked about some diversion programs and stuff like that with DEA. Um, I knew FDLE was involved at some some aspect of it, so just any information that I could get, you know, I'd kind of to funnel up to, up to them. Wow. And uh, it's just, it was, I, I've been a cop since 92 and I had never seen anything like that. I had never crazy, seen right? how like pro, yeah, yeah, how, yeah, how prolific that was, was, uh, and, and how he got away with it for so long. The other reason that Gaiden got away with it for roughly five years that he was in business between 2006 and 2011 was due to a lack of legislation. There was nothing legally the police could do regarding his prescriptions, and so they wound up focusing on the underage sex, as you'll soon see. Also, it's important to note that Gaydon was not the only one. During this time period, Florida earned a reputation of being the place to come to if you needed pills. Between 2000 and 2010, Florida became known as the Oxycontin Express because the state's weak laws and absence of regulation when it came to opioid painkillers attracted dealers and addicts from out of state. According to a report from the Florida Attorney General's office, in 2010, Florida had 900 unregulated pain clinics and was home to 98 of the doctors prescribing the largest quantities of Oxy in the country. That's worth repeating. 98 of the worst offending doctors were right here in Florida. Here again is Dan Singleton with the Brevard Sheriff's Office. After my time as a patrol supervisor in the south end of the area, I was brought into our investigative services group, and one of my main focuses and responsibilities were our drug investigation unit. And what was the big you know, problem? Because I remember, that, I mean, I've been here long enough where I think it was crack for a while, and then meth was really big, and then the opiates. So what was kind of big at that time? Uh... So at that time, it was a lot of the prescription pills, oxycodone being one of the most Uh, prominent ones at that particular time and it was not just a Brevard County problem it was a nationwide problem and at that time Florida was still trying to catch up with some of the regulations and some of the resources that law enforcement could utilize to identify who was in our opinion over prescribing some of these um, highly addictive narcotics and early on in our enforcement efforts we just didn't have that exchange of information like other states have had matter of fact we saw a large influx of out-of-state individuals that would travel just to Florida because Florida had not yet caught up with some of their um, enforcements. They had not caught up with some of their databases that allowed information sharing amongst law enforcement agencies. So, you know, we got a lot of support, obviously, from our legislatures as this problem continued to grow. Now, again, it wasn't just a Brevard County problem, but it was a problem here in Florida and throughout, and all of our law enforcement partners um, we're all trying to utilize the same old strategies in order to combat this, this new problem. He's right. It wasn't until 2009 that the Florida legislature really started taking action. In 2009, state lawmakers passed a law requiring pain clinics to register with the Department of Health and be subject to mandatory inspections. Also passed in 2009 was legislation allowing pharmacists and prescribers to access a patient's prescription history. Unfortunately, because of delays, the prescription drug management program wasn't up and running 
until September 2011, and law enforcement can only access records by making specific patient requests to the Department of Health. Again, here's Jason Kriegsman with FDLE. So our main goal in our, you know, some of the administrative part on these investigations, none of those are quick fix because, you know, we're talking about doctors and we're talking about gray areas. And look, he's a doctor, went to medical school. So who are we to say he, we know his patients better, what he should be prescribing. So it's not like a quick fix where you could go with a drug dealer on the corner and get them with the pills. So we were looking at every angle, how we could, you know, stop the bleeding per se, as far as get stop getting these pills out on the street and stop the overdoses and the deaths and the people getting addicted. All these young people we were seeing, these young girls getting hooked on these pills. And so we were looking at every avenue. One of those avenues was a regular surveillance presence on the office. Another was to send undercover agents into the office to try and obtain prescriptions. But Gaydon could tell by their urine tests that they had not taken any opiates, and so he did not prescribe any for them. And unless they caught him in the act with an underage girl, their hands were essentially tied. Taking underage girls out to dinner and hanging out with them is not a crime. Hey, if you like what we do here at Murder on the Space Coast, then help us continue our work. Please consider subscribing to Florida Today newspaper. You'll be surprised to learn that our digital subscriptions cost about the same as one premium cup of coffee a month. Just go to floridatoday.com backslash subscribe. Word of Gaydon's proclivities soon reached the medical world, where those who once worked with him were stunned at how suddenly and how far a once-respected family doctor had fallen. Well, to me as a human being and as a father, uh, obviously it was uh, the most ominous situation was, of course, having uh, being sexually involved with an underage girl. It was something that I did not expect it to him because uh, obviously I always uh, knew him as a nice person, you know, as a, being him, father of a, of a girl. And uh, that to me was the most ominous thing that it could happen. That was Dr. Hilbert Zabayos saying how shocked he was to hear the allegations, especially because Gaydon himself had a daughter. Now here is Dr. Viscara describing an awkward moment when he and his wife came across Gaydon with a young female companion. One day I remember going to a, to a medical meeting with my wife in a hotel on Palm Beach. Uh, that was probably 2010, 2009, around that time. Um, I saw him and he said hi to me, to my wife, and then inside of him he was a, there was a girl. I don't know if she was underage, but she was uh, definitely um, a young girl, okay, going to, to the hotel to a, to, to a room. Mm-hmm. That was the, probably the, yeah, that was the last time I saw him. I'd like to thank local filmmaker Dante Culp, who also lived within walking distance of Gaydon's old office. Dante provided me with the interviews he did with the two former work associates of Gaydon. Here is Dante himself talking about the research he did into how Gaydon kept or controlled his young female companions. It was money, basically. He, uh, from my understanding, is um, I, I don't think that he would want them, or I guess 
he wouldn't have them heavily addicted like normal patients. He would have them addicted enough to where they would have to come to him. I was looking forward to collaborating further with Dante as we were sharing and trading certain information. Unfortunately, he passed away suddenly in February 2021 after a short illness. It was not COVID-related. When he had not responded to a text of mine, I knew something was very wrong. He was the kind of guy that always texted back right away. He was a very nice and thoughtful man, and I'm, I'm sad to say that he's no longer with us. Dante was only 41. I know we've heard a lot of innuendo and rumor about underage girls, but unfortunately they are true. They first came to light with police on June 17, 2009, when Gaydon was pulled over during a traffic stop. That's when police found 31 bags of marijuana in the car. His passenger was a 16-year-old girl. He was arrested on the drug charge and spent the night in jail. Less than two weeks later, he was arrested again after police investigated his relationship with his passenger, who told police that she and Gaydon had sex on at least three occasions. The teen would later recant her statement when the state attorney was preparing for trial and they had to drop those charges. And if he hadn't before, now Gaydon surely had a target on his back. The odd thing is that he didn't curb his behavior or change his ways at all. In fact, it appears to have gotten worse and more brazen. Remember Melbourne teenager Corey Ann Lundstrom? She and her boyfriend were both patients of Gaydon, using him to acquire large amounts of pain pills. She told police about a time she was waitressing and witnessed Gaydon in what can only be described as an effort to groom more young girlfriends. Like two years before, and I was working at Texas Roadhouse, and he was writing prescriptions there to girls. I mean, and he, really? Yeah. How do you know? Because I saw him, and I was a server. Like you saw him with a prescription pad. I. There was these four girls that were sitting at my table, and yeah, he sat down with them, and he wrote them prescriptions, and he paid for their meal. Do you know who the girls are? Mm -mm. No, there was just four random girls that were in there. Young girls. Um, younger, yes. Um, I know there was a little, um, not almost, almost a toddler, but not with them. But that really doesn't say much anymore. Have you heard of anything with his liking of young girls or anything? I know he likes them. How do you know that? Just from being there all the time. And if that wasn't sickening enough, according to court testimony and police reports, Gaydon did not have to go very far to find teenage girls he wanted to have sex with. In one case that I found really disturbing, a 17-year-old girl was even provided to him by her own father. Let that sink in. That's how strong the addiction for opiates is. The girl said she accompanied her dad to an appointment at Gaydon's office. He had suffered a back injury and now apparently was hooked on meds. The girl had suffered her own problems and had a long juvenile history, including a few cases of having Xanax illegally. She sat out in the waiting room for a while until she was called back into the examination room where Gaydon and her father were. The girl's father then introduced her to Gaydon, who commented on how pretty she was. The girl said that Gaydon put roughly $200 cash in her hand and told her to buy a phone so he could call her on it. The girl looked up at her father who sat there laughing. The girl was 17 and John Gaydon was 56. She went out with him the following day. It has always been Florida Today's policy not to name the victims of sexual crimes. 
Eventually, after texting her for a few days, Gaydon took the girl to a hotel where he provided Xanax, a bottle of Grey Goose vodka, and proceeded to have sex with her. That was the first time they had sex, but not the last. The affair would last for several months. That creepy story wouldn't be the only time we heard about Gaydon giving an underage girl money to buy a phone in order to carry on an illicit relationship. Another of his victims was loitering outside Sunoco, adjacent to Gaydon's office on State Road A1A. She saw Gaydon and asked him for 75 cents to buy something inside of the small convenience store. He gave her $100 and told her to buy a phone. She did not and purchased marijuana. He saw her again shortly after that and asked her if she had purchased the phone. When she replied no, he drove her to the Metro PCS store and purchased a Blackberry for her. They began texting, and while she was still 17 years old, the girl told police that Gaydon took her to a fancy dinner in Cocoa Beach, where she had a salad and was thrilled to be able to drink wine at a restaurant. He then took her to his home, where he provided her with two painkillers that she proceeded to crush and snort before they had sex. They carried on a relationship that extended even after the girl turned 18. FDLE agent Jason Kriegsman. Yeah, some there was definitely information that he had uh, interest in younger females, um, and that was always something that came up. And he would prescribe younger females um, prescription pain pills and get them hooked on them, and then it was kind of like a way he could control them. I've communicated with a few of his victims and offered them the chance to be heard on the podcast, but they declined. Now, to paint a complete picture, you have to understand we're not just talking about two or three girls here. We're talking about multiple girls. According to court documents and police reports, we're talking about several hotel rooms across the street at the Doubletree being rented for weeks and even months at a time. We're talking about girls passing out on Oxycontin and then waking up naked in Gaydon's bed. We charge him with unlawful sex with a minor. Um, unfortunately, the you know he manipulated and kind of almost tried to ruin these young girls' lives. There's multiple girls that we've interviewed in the investigation that um, basically said they had sexual activity with him as a minor, but not all of them would really come forward as far as wanting to give a formal statement. A lot of it was like they would tell us, but they didn't want to be a, a witness but the one we did um you know he, he manipulates them he gets them uh where they're probably disconnected from their family so he has financial control over them and then uh he gets them on some pills um and they really have nowhere else to go and they're in a bad place and then you know he uses them for whatever he's using them for which you know we believe um a number of the girls he gave uh, stds to when we found out young girls it was herpes, to be exact. Yuck. One of the victims told me that Gaydon was cruel and would make fun of the addicts that he helped create. She described him as heartless, greedy, and a sex addict. Despite the state having to drop charges in the earlier case from 2009, they weren't done. They served a search warrant on Gaydon's Indian Harbor Beach home in August 2011. Gaydon's 18-year-old girlfriend at the time answered the door and let police enter. According to documents, they observed Gaydon drop a large bag of marijuana on a table. He was arrested again. One of the officers executing the search warrant was FDLE agent Jason Kriegsman. Yeah, we, um, 
as part of the case, we wound up executing a search warrant on a, a townhouse he was staying somewhat at with a young female. And uh, we, we obtained a search warrant for some drug possession. And upon executing that search warrant, he did ha- was in possession of marijuana, um, threw it down. Kriegsman and a Melbourne police officer met with the 18-year-old a month and a half later at Panera as they continue to try and build a case against Gaydon. Some of this audio is a little rough, and the teenager's voice has been altered to conceal her identity. During the search warrant, some police officers found some weed inside the house. Specifically, there was a pretty good bag with weed in it. Um, and, I, and I'll tell you that when we came in, I saw Dr. Gaydon with the bag of weed in his hand, and he threw it down. Can you explain how the weed got into your house? Yeah. Well, first, do you know the bag of weed that I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, he, he bought, well, he purchased that weed from Dan, is the thing. Who's Dan? Dan is his patient. Dan Butcher is his patient. And he purchased the marijuana from Dan. Dan got it from another guy and then brought it to John. Then John bought it from Dan and then... You know, that's how it's in the residence. John brought it in. Okay. And he's buying the weed for you? Yeah. Okay. Um, how long have you smoked marijuana? Uh, consistently, or when did I start? I just... Uh, when did you start smoking marijuana? Probably three years ago. Three years ago? And how long have you known John Gaden? Two years. One and a half years. Okay. How long has he been buying you marijuana? Gaden, she revealed, would also make sure she got off to school every day with enough pot to last the school day by removing all the tobacco from cigarillo blunts and packing them with two grams of marijuana. The girl would smoke five of those daily. He would make them all for me. So like he's packing your lunch for the day, kind of? Yeah, only with marijuana. She would also tell police that her relationship with Gaydon started when she was underage. Two weeks later, Gaydon's medical office is raided, and he's arrested again. And this time he's charged with having sex with a minor and delivering controlled substances to a minor. This time, the Department of Health seized many of Gaydon's records and suspended his license as well. The state's star witnesses were the girl he was living with, as well as the girl you heard me talk about earlier, the one whose dad encouraged her to date Gaydon. What's interesting is that the news accounts of the arrest and case center almost exclusively on Gaydon's pill mill. That's when it was revealed that he single-handedly was on par with the entire state of California as far as prescribing Oxycontin goes. This was now the fourth time he had been arrested and none of the charges were ever for prescribing pills to people who didn't need them. I spoke with federal prosecutor Dana Hill out of Orlando about why it's so hard to go after doctors in these cases. Hill was in the DEA before becoming a prosecutor and specialized in medical license cases. We generally, and citizens and jurors, trust doctors and pharmacists and nurses and people who provide healthcare to us. And for that reason, uh, if we're going to prosecute somebody, uh, we generally want to be in a position where we are more trusted uh, than the defendants are. Oftentimes when jurors walk in and they hear somebody's a doctor or a nurse, there's a lot that goes with that. 
really within their expertise. We're not saying this doctor cheated on his taxes or stole money from someone. We're saying this doctor, what he was doing was not medicine. And you should trust me about what that doctor was doing rather than what that uh, what the doctor um, uh, thinks he was doing. And so oftentimes we will rely, for example, on professional experts who will come in and say, hey, look, I've looked at what that doctor was doing. I've looked at the tape of the undercover or I've looked at the medical records or something like that. Um, and let the jury know that what was going on over there was not really medicine. But the cat-like Gaydon used another of his lives to escape serious punishment as he pled guilty in June 2014 to one count of distributing marijuana. He was sentenced to probation. Okay, um, Dr. Gaydon, if you'll come forward and step up to the po podium with your attorney. Sir, if you'll state your full name for the court, please. John Matthew Gaydon, Jr. MD. Unfortunately, that is pretty much the only audio of Gaydon I have. I'll explain more later. Now, the state agreed to the plea only after they recognized some major problems with one of their two main witnesses. The girl, whose father sold her out, was in the county jail and was openly hostile and uncooperative while being deposed by Gaydon's attorneys. In fact, during one of the depositions, she is slurring her words and falling asleep, causing Gaydon's attorney to question what she is on. Here again is Gaydon's attorney at that time, Bryn Brito, explaining how Gaydon avoided major offenses in the case. Well, we, we worked very, very hard on the case, and we took, you know, obviously we took depositions of the witnesses. Uh, we went through all of the discovery and the statements. The witness for the, for the government was not reliable, and that was big, the biggest problem, mm. um, I think, for the government, that she just wasn't reliable. And there was no substantiation. And, you know, at this time, I couldn't tell you 100% what the defenses were, but I know that on the day of trial when we went in, it was very obvious that they were not going to be able to prove it, beyond more than just what that witness was going to say. So, the, like, the delivery of the oxycodone, I think that there was just no evidence of that at all, if I'm going by my memory. Right, right. Um, but they did find cannabis that was kind of a throwaway. And the reason why that was the, the sticking point was it was an adjudication that was withheld on the cannabis charge, and possibly he could have maybe still gotten his license back. I think that was really what, what the... We were hopeful at that point, you know, that he was going to be able to move forward. The pill mill was finally shut down. Gaydon would finally relinquish his medical license on February 13, 2015, and promised never to practice medicine again. His operation was dead. But unbeknownst to Gaydon, some of the patients he saw during those final months in business were wired by police and carrying hidden cameras. The hammer would soon be coming down on him for all he had done. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast. So after doing um, surveillance and getting our, all our preliminary information together, we um, cultivated a confidential source that was a patient of Gaydon's that um, came forward. And but it was a tragic story by that point. You know, his mother died. He, he really had no money. Um, he sort of was this once very powerful, brilliant, you know, person that people referred to or, or sought for advice or medical, you know, care. And I don't think that he really was there anymore. I know that it was a, a very sad fall for grief. That's it for now. 
I'm opinion editor John A. Torres. And you can follow me on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And follow the podcast on at 321Murder. For more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Monster on the Beach, a Murder on the Space Coast podcast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.